This recording is brought to you by Whitworth University. To hear additional programs, please visit www.whitworth.edu backslash podcast. It's wonderful to be here with you, and thank you for that very kind introduction. I come from a place, uh, the land of Garrison Keeler, if that means anything to you, where when the beloved wife of 57 years died, her husband got up at the funeral and walked to the microphone and said, she was a good worker. So that was a lot for me to listen to and, and take. Oh, that was a little delayed, I know, not as, as funny as you thought. Um, it's all downhill from here. Um, anyway, it's wonderful to be here at Whitworth. I'm so thankful to the administration and the religious depart, uh, depart, religion department for this invitation to all of you for coming, particularly to Dr. Nieder. And I could have returned the favor and said similar things about you, and I'm so glad for uh, all the work you've done to allow me to come and, and make this such an enjoyable trip. Tonight I'm going to be talking about real faith in a virtual world, Christian discipleship in a digital age. The subject I'm going to address today is Christian faithfulness in a virtual world. That is the primary question to be addressed, though another way to get at the theme is to see it as addressing the broad topic of Christian ethics and technology. Hearing those two terms might lead you to draw a number of early conclusions about what I will say, so I want to clarify at the outset what I will and will not be addressing this evening. First, I will not talk about particular cases regarding technology or specifically about the internet and social media. I do think that those discussions are important, but I want to attend to the broader meaning of ethics in its earliest sense, which for the ancient Greeks as for the early Christians was not centered upon solving moral quandaries or problems, but determining what to do, or determining what to do in particularly sticky situations. You know what I mean when I mention such problems, often used to teach ethics in freshman uh, uh, philosophy courses. There are three people in a boat, and the food is very scarce, and it's quickly running out and can, perhaps can sustain two people in the boat at most with sharks all around the boat. And should you, should they, should you share the food and all die of starvation, that's A, or B, throw one of the persons overboard to the shark so that two of you can live, or C, acknowledge that if you are in a boat with two strangers and no food in shark-infested waters, you made some pretty bad life choices, and you probably deserve to become an ethics textbook illustration. You know, things like that. No, I would like to focus not on sticky technological situations, but upon the original meaning of ethics, which was not so much about making decisions, but about being a certain type of person, about moral character, and not ethical conundrums. The early Christians thought about this question of character differently than the ancient Greeks, despite some similarities. For the Greeks, ethics, which came from the Greek word ethos or character, was tied up with our actions, which led to habits, and our habits in turn became ingrained in us as our virtues, our good qualities and skills, or when bad, our vices, our bad qualities and skills became ingrained. A number of early Christians were influenced by this way of thinking, but there were always differences between Greek and Christian conceptions, not least because Christians believed in grace and that our character could be changed by an encounter with God, whereas the Greeks and Aristotle specifically thought we were simply the sum total 
of our habits and in a sense captive to them and thus self-determined. Now, a number of Christians, and particularly Martin Luther, did not like this way of thinking of good actions, habits, and virtues at all, and for some significant reasons. Some in Luther's day saw our relationship with God as dependent upon the development of these virtues, and though, though this is important, as assisted by grace. Luther believed, however, that this way of thinking was to get things backwards. God does not forgive us because we are good or holy. Rather, we are called to love God and our neighbor and to live holy lives because God first loved and forgave us. Nevertheless, once this order is firmly in place, we are still left with the question of how we are to live in the present as people who have experienced God's mercy and grace. In other words, we, are right, we rightly ask as to the shape of Christian freedom that has been granted to us, as well as to the form Christian discipleship is to take. Long before Luther, the Apostle Paul stated that Christians are to be people who demonstrate the activity of the Spirit in their lives and who live in such a way that reflects such activity. Paul instructed the Christians in Philippi to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, just as he continued, it is God who is at work in you. Furthermore, Paul himself specified actions and qualities that were contrary to the Spirit of Christ and that Christians were to avoid, such as quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, factions, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. That list sounds pretty much like a number of online discussion board comments, I think. Furthermore, Paul commended actions and qualities that should mark the life of the Christian, such as the fruit of the Spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And while these things are the fruit of the Spirit and not our own doing, Paul can immediately go on to speak not only of divine agency, but of our own, exhorting his readers to keep in step with the Spirit, by which they live, and then adding the direct command, let us not become conceited, provoking and envying one another. Lists like those just mentioned can be found in other Pauline books as well, as in Ephesians where readers are told, do not let un unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful to building others up. They are then instructed to get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice, and to replace these with kindness and compassion. Not to make light of this, but these are New Testament naughty and nice lists. Lists of actions and attributes, that is, lists that set forth actions to be avoided and actions to be done. They are also lists of qualities of character that are to be condemned and rooted out, and lists of those qualities that are to be encouraged and nurtured. Indeed, New Testament scholarship calls such lists virtue and vice lists, and they are found throughout the New Testament. It is generally recognized that they borrow from earlier lists in Judaism, and perhaps even from some former Greek ones though they are now transformed into lists that are distinctively Christian in content, in shape, and meaning. Paul, like the other writers of the New Testament, was indeed concerned with questions of Christian character and how we are to live in light of the gospel. Indeed, he can tell the Philippians that they are to contemplate, to reflect, to meditate, to think about, think on, anything that is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, and praiseworthy. By reasonable extension to today, it is upon such things that we are to set our minds and where we are to spend our time and to focus our attention and our concentration. In light of the New Testament, we can legitimately ask, what kind of life am I and are we as God's people to live? And today, as I said, I want to deal with the questions, how can we live a life of faithfulness in a digital world? 
And what aspects of that world can provide particular difficulties and temptations that stand in the way of becoming the kind of people that we should be? And how can a life of faithfulness be fostered as we live a wired life? Moreover, how can we keep technology, and perhaps particularly the internet, from eating away at our souls? I think these questions are of great importance for any Christian, although I also think that any thoughtful person who is interested in the question of who they want themselves to be will, be, will find this of importance, whether they are Christian or not. As we begin to think of these things, a few other qualifications are in order. First, what I'm going to share is not a lecture condemning modern technology. For me to do that would be not only wrong, but hypocritical. I typed this presentation using a word processor on a computer, quite happy for the cut and paste function that it provides, of course. I made use of Google and other online tools during its composition, and I love the ability to track down things as I grow older that seem more and more difficult to corral in my mind. Moreover, all of the temptations I will speak about today are things I believe we share in common. So I have no interest in bashing technology or the internet in general, though I do think the online world does present not only benefits, but also some distinct challenges and some dangers to us in our lives. The second qualification is that I'm not going to be talking about any specific content on the internet. Most of the time when we talk about the dangers of the internet, we talk about the content one finds there. Certainly there is much online that is degrading to human life and character, and you know what I'm talking about. So while the content, content that can be found on the internet is an important topic, it's not the focus here. I want rather to address the form of the technology itself, not the content it delivers, but rather how it delivers it and how we are shaped by utilizing it. It was Marshall McLuhan long ago who recognized that while new technology debates begin with questions about the content of a medium, what really matters is the impact of the medium itself, for every new medium not only carries content, but in fact changes who we are. I remember in one of my early years of teaching, reading through the translation of Homer's Iliad by Robert Fagels, a new translation at the time. Fagels wrote an extended introduction to that book, and I was fascinated by his discussion of how the Iliad came into existence and was communicated over time. In brief, people memorized and recited it across generations. Let that sink in for a moment. Have you ever read the Iliad? It is um, long. It's very long. But the human mind can do extraordinary things, including memorizing amazingly long poetic narratives. Yet almost no one performs such feats of memorization today. And the question we might ask is, why not? The primary answer is that such memorization passed away with the appearance of writing in print. There's no need to memorize such a poem if you can write it down and read it when you want to remember it. When stored on paper or papyrus earlier or any other surface, for that matter, rather than in the mind, it can be shared with others in a form that is relatively easy to access. Moreover, this written form is much more reliable than human memory, no matter how excellent. Here's another way to think of this. The telephone game, where one person whispers something in the ear of another person next to them, who then whispers it in the ear of the person next to them, and so on around a large circle, until the last person says what he or she has heard. Of course, things change around the circle. That would be a lot less interesting if the game consisted of one person writing down something on a piece of paper, and everyone passes the paper around, and the last person reads it. Not very interesting as a game, 
but remarkable as a kind of technology. Pen and paper now able to record exactly what was thought of the first person and to preserve it around the circle and to do it through time. So here we discover the first rule of technological advance, any advance. Something great is gained. In the case of writing in print, what is gained is the ability to produce, record, share, and preserve vast amounts of information. But something also is lost. In the movement from oral to print culture, the mental discipline and achievement of vast and meticulous memorization simply passes away. In other words, with the ability to commit things to writing, much information moved from internal to external memory. Later, after the invention of movable type to produce books efficiently and economically, near, nearly everyone could have access to a Bible, for instance, but fewer now perhaps hid God's word in their heart, in the words of Psalm 119. That is to say, after everyone could own a Bible, fewer people seemed to memorize it. Let's fast forward to the present. We are now in the middle of a technological revolution perhaps as significant, and some would argue more so, than the revolution that took us from an oral culture of memorization to a literal literary culture of the printed word. In regard to learning and education, entertainment, and social life, and almost everything, we are moving from the realm of print to the realm of a digital online world where much of our human interaction is not face-to-face, -face, nor even that of reading the books of others, but of engaging others in a virtual world. This is the digital revolution, and it may have effects that are as far-reaching as that of the prior invention of writing and print. And if the rules of technology hold here as well as before, with every such movement, there are benefits and there are costs. The benefits of the technological revolution are many, and I do not think anyone has so winsomely described them in recent years as Clive Thompson, whose book, Smarter Than You Think, How Technology is Changing Our Minds for the Better, is a wonderful examination of just how deep and far-reaching the technological revolution of the internet is for us today. Thompson describes a world in which we are able to preserve unbelievable amounts of information for posterity. Furthermore, today more people have access to the collected knowledge of the world than ever before, much of it no farther than a few keystrokes away. So while there are both benefits and costs to the digital age, Thompson is on the whole optimistic about the benefits. We are living in a time in which the collective memory and intelligence of persons can be harnessed to solve problems in new and exciting ways as but one example. We might consider a case in which a number of biologists sent a problem that had stymied them for decades, namely the particular folding of the M-PMV virus, which causes AIDS in monkeys. Uh, they, they worked on this for over a decade without success. And having found no solution, these scientists sent this problem out into the internet where with now 200,000 persons working in a model of collective thinking, this massive online research team solved the decade-long problem in three weeks. Besides access to a wealth of information and the ability to increasingly conduct more refined searches of it, we are also in a world in which we can learn a tactile skill not simply by reading directions, but by watching someone demonstrate it for us on YouTube, and where a child can learn mathematics by reviewing a lecture over and over and over again on Khan Academy until they understand the principles being taught. Certainly, we must admit that some things are better learned by being visualized than being simply read, or understood better with repeated consideration and explanation. But despite such benefits, there are still questions that linger about the costs of technology. Now, before considering these questions, we must first admit that debates over technological revolutions are, in fact, very old. As Thompson notes, each new tool for communication 
has provoked panic that society will devolve into silly chatter. For instance, in contemplating the telegraph, the telegraph, Henry David Thoreau was decidedly pessimistic about the technological changes of his lifetime. He writes, we are in great haste to construct a magnetic telegraph from Maine to Texas, but Maine and Texas, it may be, have nothing important to communicate. That <laughs> may be true. Um, as, if, as if the main object, he says, were to talk fast and not to talk sensibly. We are eager to tunnel under the Atlantic and to bring the old world, England, some weeks nearer to the new. But perchance the first news that will leak through into the broad, flapping American ear will be that the Princess Adelaide has the whooping cough." Unquote. Now, if Thoreau said that of the Telegraph, I can't imagine what he would say about texting today or about the internet and people's concern about the fashion sense of Kate Middleton, the Duchess of Cambridge, which, by the way, they can check out at whatkatewore.com. It's true, it's still up. If Thoreau worried about the telegraph, Mark Twain worried about the telephone, mocking it in his short work, A Telephonic Conversation. And such worry continued with the arrival of every new technology. Lee DeForest, the father of radio, looked back on the invention toward the end of his life in 1952 and spoke of the moral depravity of commercial broadcast media and of the, quote, moronic quality of the majority of today's radio programs. He regretted the invention. At the very least, such consideration of the past allows us to keep from making romantic allusions to a time when everyone read and thought deeply and spoke insightfully and avoided the trivial and the vulgar, and there was never such time. But debates like these over technology started much earlier even than Twain and Thoreau. In Plato's work, The Phaedrus, Socrates is horrified by those who have moved on from memorization to print in effect, exporting their memory from their minds to written records. Socrates did not think that storing this knowledge in print was really knowledge at all if it was not held in the mind through memorization. And he insisted that no wisdom can exist in this way, for the written word is but a pale reflection of the living voice of a living person. Yet almost no one today would say that, or say that only those who had memorized large swaths of prose are learned. We long ago moved from memorization to print, from an oral to a literary culture, and this led to a realization that learning can be gauged by one's ability to retrieve and synthesize material contained in books, and that this is a much larger swath of material than could ever be contained in one mind, regardless of its powers of memorization. Yet perhaps what becomes most apparent when we read Thompson's and others is not that revolutions in technology always provide great gains amid true losses, but that technology cannot simply be blamed for changing us, though it does. Rather, technology is the means by which the weaknesses of our nature are revealed on a larger screen. Marshall McLuhan stated that a medium is anything that stretches, extends, or amplifies some human capacity. So we should not be surprised that technology extends not only the good, but also the bad. Technology is therefore the amplification of character into an ever-expanding public world. So leaving aside for the moment the question of whether technology is making us worse as thinkers, as persons, as moral agents, even as faithful Christians, what is at first striking is that technology reveals the problems we have always had but casts them on a bigger canvas. The Apostle Paul exhorted his readers to think of others and not only of themselves, and he did not have to experience social media to understand the weight of the problem of our own selfishness, self-interest, or even narcissism. 
nor did the problem of apathy arise only after the invention of the Xbox or the iPhone. Caring about caring has always been a challenge, as all parents of teenagers from the beginning of time have known. Sorry. And caring about our, it shows how old I am, and caring about our character and the life we are called to live has always been an upheld battle against our fallen nature and can only be waged in light of the Spirit's own work, hence the vice and virtue lists of the New Testament even for Christians. Rather than causing the problems of narcissism, apathy, selfishness, sexual anarchy, and general nastiness, Social media and the internet simply provides a much bigger screen on which our narcissism, indifference, self-obsession, prejudices, mean-spiritedness, lust, and general nastiness can be exercised. The ugly and brutal language that appears on comments boards below articles is certainly something that the anonymity of the internet fosters, of course, but it doesn't create such thoughts. The bad tree bears bad fruit, and while most persons would not speak as they do on a comments board were they speaking to a person face-to-face, Technology does not create the ugliness of the speech, but simply reveals the reality of the hidden convictions that give rise to it, though it does without question make their appearance more readily evident and rampant. In other words, technology is perhaps as appropriately understood as that which reveals character, at least as much as it shapes it. And so the back and forth comments in discussion threads on the internet are not unlike and indeed reflect the life we find in the philosopher Hobbes' description of the state of nature that long preceded the digital world. They are often, to borrow from Hobbes, nasty, brutish, and short. Well, nasty and brutish, not always short. In this regard, technology is seen to be that which reveals rather than creates our character. But the matter cannot be left there, for there are, in fact, even more substantive dangers about the digital revolution than its ability to amplify and extend human vice to a larger and larger, larger audience. For if Clive Thompson is the digital world's defender, Nicholas Carr is its prophetic antagonist. In his Pulitzer Prize-nominated book, The Shallows, What the Internet is Doing to Our Brains, as well as subsequent works, Carr, like McLuhan and Neil Postman before him, reminds us that the medium of information is not simply a neutral viaduct of conduct, but shapes our thinking and conduct as well. Since the appearance of Carr's book, many others have followed with similar claims of how technology not only amplifies character, but also reshapes it and the mind itself, and thus changes us in very deep ways. Carr decries the fact that deep reflective thought, the kind needed to read a challenging book, the kind needed to quietly ponder over a problem, the kind needed to meditate upon the large questions of life, existence, and action, this now seems to elude him. His brain itself changed by so much flitting around the internet. Like a hummingbird that whirls from flower to flower, sipping only superficially from each, but drinking deeply from none, the internet is designed to move us from distraction to distraction, from the trivial to the trivial, all for the sake of exposing us to more and more advertising. Carr has thus made the argument now famous that Google has ruined his brain. It has been echoed as recently as two weeks ago by Michael Harris in the Globe and Mail, a newspaper in Canada, in a piece entitled, I Have Forgotten How to Read. Carr is, however, no grouchy old man who despises technology. He fully recognizes the great gains the internet provides, including all of the advantages for research and information sharing mentioned earlier. But if Thompson celebrates these benefits, Carr calls us to recognize the costs. As he writes, the boons are real, but they come at a price. What the net seems to be doing is chipping away my capacity for concentration and contemplation. 
Carr reminds us that technology that pertains to our intellectual life not only expands our cognitive ability, but changes them. And just as the appearance of maps allowed us to think abstractly about space and the invention of the clock allowed us to think abstractly about the passing of time, so the digital world has changed the way we think and reflect at all. And for Christians and for thoughtful persons, this should cause us some concern. It's one thing to become mathematically lax in an age of calculators or to stop bothering memorizing phone numbers when our phones dial them for us. But while there are such things that memory can be that can be outsourced, this does not work with our character. We can commit our memories to a hard drive and with a new kind of memory retrieve them. And this may in the end not lessen our cognitive abilities or our learning and intelligence, though Carr raises questions about that too. But such outsourcing does not work with our character. We can outsource our data collection, but we cannot outsource our critical thinking and theological and moral reflection. And one of the great dangers of technology is that it can lead us mistakenly to particular forms of self-deception, all requiring critical analysis. First, the power of modern technology can lead us to think that access to information is the same as knowledge, and to confuse the wealth of data on ethical subjects with wisdom itself. Moreover, our increasing abandonment of print culture, the world of books for that of superficial internet browsing, is in fact robbing us of our ability to think in the reflective, deep, and linear way that is necessary not only for a rich intellectual life, but also for any critical theological and moral reasoning and for spiritual formation that is of enduring value and significance. Let me make this point concretely. Today the Bible, today the Bible is not only a book that can be owned by nearly anyone, but it can be immediately accessible for us digitally. Yet while it is nonetheless true that having the entire Bible on our smartphones may be cool, it says nothing at all of our knowledge of the Bible, much less of our understanding of it as Holy Scripture, and nothing at all about our wisdom in discerning how we are to live in light of its central message. Indeed, one could make a case that never in the history of the world has the Bible been so readily accessible and have aids to its study been so numerous, and yet knowledge and understanding of the Bible are today strikingly thin and sparse not only in culture, but in the churches themselves. And when the content of our theological and moral reflection is so thin, because our knowledge of scripture is so thin, then no amount of technology will be able to work with what just isn't there. As the psalmist stated, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Indeed. In other words, the fact that I have the Bible on my cell phone and always available to me wherever I may go may in fact not help but hinder my reflection upon it and my internalization of it, for it may blind me to the fact that access to information is not the same thing as the appropriation of knowledge, and is certainly not the same thing as the achievement of understanding and the acquisition of wisdom. Indeed, the fact that the Bible is always close to me on my cell phone may lead me into the great lie that I do not need to hide God's word in my heart because it's always in my pocket. This delusion that access to information equals real understanding may lead us to think that we can outsource all of our memory and reflection to technology, but this too is mistaken. You cannot reflect on what is not there in your mind to begin with, nor can you do a search on Google for something if you have no idea what you are even looking for. In short, one cannot solve a problem of the intellect of any nature without knowing enough to understand why it's a problem. And this background knowledge is only gained through prior study, focus, and concentration. By extension, 
we cannot act creatively to address spiritual, theological, and moral issues in our lives without having spent careless time gleaning the knowledge, experience, and wisdom that makes such creativity possible. The great temptation, the temptation to confuse access to information with the possession of wisdom, is the delusion of omniscience. This is an ancient delusion, with the internet now taking the place of the tree in the middle of the Garden of Eden. At its worst, it is a rejection of our finitude that refuses to acknowledge the limitations of our knowledge and our dependence upon God for our wisdom. This is a great temptation, and it is complemented by other temptations, great temptations that the digital age uniquely brings to us. Another is to confuse connect connectivity between persons with true relationships. And yet another is to confuse the awareness of social problems around the world with actions for their resolution. This confusion of online interaction with real embodied relationships and of global awareness with real local action is the delusion of omnipresence. At its worst, it succumbs to a Gnosticism that believes our existence can be translated into a disembodied digi digital presence that confuses online friends for the real formation that occurs through embodied friendships and confuses a knowledge of the world's problems with real local action. As we are not omniscient, so we are also not omnipresent nor omnipotent. And while the internet and digital media certainly can and may increase our knowledge of the world and its problems, as well as extend our presence and action, it can also deceive us into thinking that we can know all and do all and be all and be anywhere. But as the ancient writer Seneca noted, to be everywhere is in the end to be nowhere. While all three of these temptations are powerful, the digital age seems particularly susceptible to the first, that of omniscience. Though technology is amazing at helping us glean facts and access information and connect us with others, its power decreases exponentially as we move from facts to knowledge, from knowledge to understanding, and from understanding to wisdom in the formation of our character. If this is true, then our digital arena must be framed and offset by a rich exploration of the mystery of the gospel, as well as a retrieval of those older practices of prayer, meditation upon scripture, deep reading in the wisdom of the ages, focused intellectual and moral reflection, and the disciplines of spiritual formation. It is this disciplined attention and concentration and the ability to read deeply which are perhaps especially placed in jeopardy in our digital age. And here the particular challenges and costs of the digital ecology appear most acute. For if the church of the past was concerned about where we put our money and our time, Today we might rightly ask if the digital economy is robbing us of our attention and our concentration, indeed the unity of our very selves. That our attention is being stolen by the invasion of ever-present and intrusive technology, as well as by the perfection of distraction and of the inflaming of our passions and desires for commercial purposes, has been recently and persuasively argued by Matthew Crawford and others, such as Tristan Harris, formerly of Google and self-described as Google's design ethicist, who has written that technology does nothing less than hijack people's minds. And he was worked for a company in which he says this is the purpose of this. In plain English, your attention span is up for sale. And the more things to which you pay attention online, the more of your attention that can be sold to advertisers. As John Dyer has observed, when technology has distracted us to the point where we no longer examine it, it gains the greatest opportunity to enslave us. That the digital age has heightened our possibilities for distraction and that quiet reflection is on the wane are, I think, indisputable facts, and Carr documents these extensively. Yet all the more reason that Christians must here act against the grain of our digital nature. 
Or it, all, it is also indisputable that much of the internet's flood of information can be trivial, cheap, and silly. And that its penchant to shape the mind for distraction is very powerful. Unless we want simply to subsume our life into the vapid, the trivial, and the ephemeral, we must find time for those ancient practices of prayer and meditation and reflection upon the sources that give us our convictions and our character. And scripture singularly, but also the wisdom of the ages, wisdom that has been captured primarily in the literary age. The Bible itself is the product of this age, and in fact played no small part in the development of the literary culture. Indeed, the Codex, as the forerunner of the book, is in no small way a Christian invention. It is the accumulated wisdom of the past that stands as a witness against our current fascination and indeed idolization of the immediate, the new, and the present. That we live in the digital age need not mean we renounce it, of course, entirely. Digital technology, with all its powerful uh, power to enhance connections, both information and re relationships, has its own gifts to contribute. But Christian faithfulness does require an additional commitment to foster in ourselves the discipline that limit its problematic effects. This entails placing limits upon the trivial while cultivating the significant, all the while staving off technology's addictive tendencies. As Thompson himself says, if you want to internalize a piece of knowledge, you've got to linger over it. You can't flit back and forth. You have to focus for a reasonable amount of time with mental peace, but today's digital environment rarely leaves you any such peace. Think of all the bells and whistles and beeps and dings every time we get an email, a text message, or a new update of any kind. How can any sustained thought be done in such a world, one in which the average American checks her phone numerous times every hour and more than 50 to 300 times a day? As Thompson states, constantly switching between tasks is ruinous to our attention and focus. It certainly does not provide, prove itself beneficial for meditating on scripture or for reflecting upon difficult ethical and social questions. Indeed, as Crawford has stated, what seems to be at stake as our mental lives become more fragmented is, quote, nothing less than the question of whether we can maintain a coherent self. Christian discipleship is a life lived in conformity to Christ of attendance to his gospel, and of reflection upon the witness of its message in Holy Scripture. This attendance and reflection require, first and foremost, an intentional and intermittent withdrawal from the digital distractions of our lives, just as we must withdraw from any distractions. Discipleship requires the time and quietness needed to reflect and bring some unity to the fragmentation of our own interior life, to know who we are, and what we are about, and most importantly, to obey the divine command, be still and know that I am God, and to hear the great divine promise, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee. Facing this interior life, facing it squarely, even facing it down, is at the heart of being honest with ourselves about who we are and what we are to be, for facing up to ourselves is the first step of courage. The online word world does nothing to foster such reflection and does much to help us avoid it. Indeed, it is designed to undermine it. When I was in college, there was a woman who cut my hair who told me she had the radio and television on at her home all the time. When I asked her why, she said, because I cannot stand to be with myself. The internet did not create this problem of self-avoidance, but simply stands in a long line of technology that provides a way for it to occur. 
Yet it is perhaps the medium most given to reinforce the trivial and make this avoidance possible. It is certainly the medium most suited to make our temptations readily available at any time and at any place while simultaneously stoking our addictive behavior through what psychologists call intermittent reinforcement, or that's why they say that uh, your cell phone is a slot machine in your pocket. We can talk about that later. It does all of this while insulating us from ever seriously considering challenges that call our temptations and addictions, not to mention our prejudices, presuppositions, and convictions into question. The church has always recognized the need for fasting in order to sharpen the mind and to gain control over bodily desires. Perhaps the new forms of discipline would not be simply to abstain from food and from sex, as the early church taught, but to find times to abstain from the call of the immediate, the urgent, the insatiable, and the readily digitally available. In other words, to find times away from the digital world in the wilderness of the on offline one. Food is not bad, but desires for food necessarily need to be curbed for proper health and happiness. The same holds true for sex. As C.S. Lewis noted, it doesn't take a prudish person to know that while sex is a gift to us, no one can act on every sexual urge without the dissipation and destruction of our lives. And as Lewis added, our appetites grow by our indulgence of them. What the digital age reveals is that what has ever been true of food and sex is also true of information, for intellectual desires can mirror bodily ones. As Shane Hips has said, if we are not alert, the information age may stunt our growth and create a permanent puberty of the mind. Christian discipleship is thus a matter of rededicating our churches and ourselves to the formation which Paul reminded his listeners can only come about through the Spirit's work, even while we are called to our own correspondent creaturely obedience. A mind that does not still stand still long enough to study scripture is one that will not stand still long enough to listen to a sermon, or certainly to this lecture. A restless mind formed by endless distraction will find it difficult to reflect upon the deep mysteries of faith, the depths of our own depravity and moral failure, the height of divine grace, and the breadth of human experience, our own calling to be Christian disciples within it. In brief, if we do not rein in our digital temptations and addictions and really pray for this, we are in danger of an impoverished shallowness. The irony is that our lives will not be interesting enough to tweet about if we're not interested in enough things more substantial than Twitter. The obvious lesson in the end is that our online lives require the same necessary discipline as our offline ones. Even Thompson, with no apparent religious intent at all, reflects on religious practices of rest and refreshment and concludes digital Sabbaths are crucial for our cognition and our spirit. Again, the internet and social media aren't bad in themselves, but all things must be done in moderation. And, alike, and like all things in the world, they stand in the sunshine and the shadows of a good yet fallen creation. Digital practices are therefore understood soberly and done in moderation because we realize that there are greater ends for which we were made. The need for regular and dedicated times of quiet reflection, for reflection upon thoughtful reading, for intentional face-to-face -face friendships and conversations with others, all these are part of gaining the qualities of empathy and patience and persistence and pathos or suffering. They're also necessary to appreciate the fact that we are finite persons who possess finite knowledge, presence, and energy. And the illusions of omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence that technology give us are based on a very old lie about our ability to comprehend all knowledge and affect all things, and in turn, deny our finitude as creatures. Such should lead us to remember our mortality, which in turn should lead us to a stance of true intellectual as well as moral humility. It may also help us to find peace in a particular vocation. As Walker Percy stated, lucky is the man, lucky is the person 
who does not secretly believe that every possibility is open to him. For while there are many things that technology can do, and these are rightly celebrated, there are very important things it cannot. And the shaping of our character as reflective and faithful disciples can benefit from but not be accomplished by the tools we use to foster it. The tools themselves can, if we are not careful, delude us into thinking that our great access to information and awareness of the problems of our world are the same as the wisdom and character we need to live and act well within it. And finally, the church and Christians within it must ever remember that God has chosen to reveal himself to the world not through a screen but through a son. And this without question has ever unfolding implications for how we relate to God, to others, and to the world. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kimlin. Um,